Section 11 of Diary of a U-Boat Commander This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Diary of a U-Boat Commander by Stephen King Hall Section 11 Note by Etienne Before quoting the next entry in Carl's journal, it is necessary to explain the situation which confronted him when he arrived in Seabrugge. In his absence his beloved Zoe had been arrested as an Allied agent, and she was tried for espionage within a day or two of his arrival. There is no record of how he heard the news, and the blow he sustained was probably so terrible that whilst there was yet hope he felt no desire to write. But, as will be seen, there came a time when he turned to his journal as the last friend that remained to him. It is a curious fact that, with the exception of an entry at the beginning of this journal, Carl makes little mention of his mother and home at Frankfurt. Though he does not say so, it seems possible that his mother had heard of his entanglement with Zoe, and a barrier had risen between them. This suggestion gains strength from the fact that in his blackest moments of despair he never seems to consider the question of turning to Frankfurt for sympathy. Interest is naturally aroused as to the details of Zoe's trial. The available material consists solely of the long letter she wrote to him from Bruges jail. It may be that one day the German archives of the period of occupation will reveal further details. Information on the subject is possibly at the disposal of the British Intelligence Service, but this would be kept secret. All we know on the matter is derived from the letter, which has been preserved inside the second volume of Carl's diary. There seems no doubt that she was caught red-handed, but to say more would be to anticipate her own words. It was a matter of some difficulty to know where best to introduce Zoe's letter, but with a view to securing as much continuity of thought in the story as possible, it has been decided to quote it at this juncture, although he did not receive it until after he had made the entry in the journal, which will be quoted directly after the letter. I would like to appeal to any reader who may happen to be engaged in administrative or reconstructive work in Belgium to communicate with me, care of Messrs. Hutchinson, should he handle any papers dealing with Zoe's trial. Etienne. Zoe's Letter My best beloved, when you get this letter, cease to sorrow for what will have happened, for I shall be at rest, and in peace at last, freed from a world in which I have known bitter sorrow, and, until you came into my life, but little joy. For these past months I am grateful to God, if such a being exists and regulates the conduct of a world gone mad. For in a few hours I am to die. It is harder for you than for me. One moment of agony I suffered, a moment that seemed to last a century, when, amidst the sea of faces that swam in a confused mass before me at the trial, I saw your eyes and the torture that you were suffering. When I saw your eyes I knew that the President had said I must die. I am glad that I was told this by you, the only one amongst all these men who love me. I suppose the President spoke. I never heard him. But I saw your eyes, 
and I knew. My darling, it was cruel of you to come, cruel to me, and cruel to yourself, but I loved you for being there. It showed me that up till the last you would stand by me, and until you read this you cannot know all the facts, that to you, as to the others, I must have seemed a woman spy, and that nevertheless you stood by me, is to me a recollection of unsurpassable sweetness, compared with which all other thoughts of you fade into insignificance. Know now, O oh, well-beloved, that I was not unworthy of your love. I have a story to tell you, and I have such a little time left that I must write quickly. The priest who has been with me comes again an hour before the dawn, and he has promised to deliver these my last words of love into your hands. My real name is Zoe Zinya Olga Spilitz, and I was born twenty-nine years ago at my father's country house at Inkovano, near Koniusfol. I am Polish, at least my father was, and my mother comes from the Don country. There was a day when my father's ancestors were princes in Poland. Poor Poland was torn by the vultures of Europe, just as your countrymen, my Karl, are tearing poor Belgium and France, and so my family lost estates year by year, and my grandfather is buried somewhere in the dreary steppes of Siberia, because he dared to be a Polish patriot. My father bowed before the storm and under my mother's influence he never became mixed up with politics. Thus he lived on his estates at Incuvano, and nursed them for my younger brother, Alexandrovich, the child of his old age. Alex would be nineteen now, had he lived. The estates were large as these things go in Western Europe, but they were but a garden, as compared with the lands held by my great-grandfather, Boris Sibilitz. My father had a dream, and he dreamed this dream from the day Alex was born to the day they both died in each other's arms. My father dreamt that one day the Tsars would soften their heart to Poland, and raise her up from the dust to a place amongst the nations, and my father dreamt that Alexandrovich Sibilitz would become a leader of Poland, as his ancestors had been before him. And so my father nursed his estates and pinched and saved, in preparation for the day when his beautiful dream should come true. My poor idealistic father never realized, oh my Karl, that when one wants a thing one must fight to the death. Alex was the apple of his eye, but I was much loved by my mother. Perhaps she dreamed a dream about me. I know not, but she determined that I should have all that was necessary. Paris, Berlin, Munich, Dresden, and a season in London. Then I came home at twenty-one, perfectly educated according to the world, beautiful according to men, and dressed according to Paris. But I was only to find out how little I knew. My mother and I used to take a house in Warsaw for the season, and I met many notable men and women. In these days I, also, thought I could do something for Poland but after two or three seasons I found that I, too, was only dreaming idle dreams. Oh, my beloved, beware of dreaming idle dreams. Listen, 
I once met the Prime Minister of all Russia at a reception. I captivated him, and thought, now, now I shall do something. I sat next to him at dinner. I talked of Poland, and I knew my subject. I talked brilliantly. He listened, he hung on my words, and he, the Prime Minister of all Russia, the Tsar's right-hand man, asked me to drive with him next day in his sledge. I, an almost unknown Polish girl. When I accepted I was in the seventh heaven of delight. Next day he called and we set forth. At a deserted spot in the woods near Warsaw he tried to kiss me. I struck him in the face with the butt of his own whip. That was why he had hung on my words, and that was why he had taken me for my drive. It was my Polish body that interested him, not Poland. The Prime Minister of Russia was confined to his room for two days, owing to an indisposition. How I laughed when I saw the bulletin in the paper, signed by two doctors, but it taught me a lesson. I never dreamt idle dreams again. No, I am wrong, my beloved. I dreamt an idle dream, a lovely dream about you and I an after-the-war dream, if this war should ever end, but like other dreams it has ended, in dreams. But I must hurry, for my little watch tells me that one hour of my five has gone, and I have much to say. I could have married, and married brilliantly, but Poland held me back. I did not know what I could do for my country. It all seemed so hopeless, and yet I felt that perhaps one day, and I felt I ought to be single when that day came. It was not easy, my Karl. Sometimes it was hard. One man there was. Sergius was his Christian name. He loved me madly. And sometimes I thought... But no matter. He is dead now. Killed at Tannenberg. And I... Well, I will tell you more of my story. When the war broke out and clouded over that last beautiful summer in 1914, I wonder will there ever be another like it in your lifetime, my Karl. No, I don't think it can ever be quite the same after all this. We were all in the country. Alex was back from his school in Petrograd, and my father kept him at home for the autumn term. How well I remember the excitement, the mobilization, the blessing of the colors the wave of patriotism which swept over the country. Even I, even I, under the influence of the specious proclamations that were issued broadcast by the government, with their promises of reform and redress for Poland after the war was over, felt more Russian than Polish. Lies, 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 that was what the government promises were, my Karl. Under the stress of war the rottenness of that great white sepulchre Russia, feared the revival of the Polish spirit, it might have been awkward, and so they lied with their tongues and their cheeks, and we simple Poles believed them. The peasantry flocked to their depots, little knowing whom they fought, but the proclamations which were read to them told them they fought for Poland, and we women worked and prayed for the success of Russian arms. Then the tide of war swept westward and all day long and every day the troops and the guns and the motor-cars and the wagons rolled through the village to the west. 
Guarded hints in the papers seemed to say that all was not well in France. But France was so far away, and all the time the Russians were going west through our village. Mighty Russia was putting forth her strength, and the Austrian debacle was in full swing. These were great days, my Karl, for a Russian. Then, one day, the long columns of men and all the traffic seemed to hesitate in the sluggish westward flow, and then it stopped, and then it began to go east. The weeks went on, and one day, very, very faintly, there was a rumbling like a distant thunderstorm. It was the guns. The front was coming back. Have you ever seen forest fires, my Karl? We had them every autumn in our woods. If you have, then you know how all the small animals and the birds, the rabbits and the foxes, and perhaps a wolf or two, and the deer, and the thrushes and the linnets, come out from the shelter of the trees, fleeing blindly from the great peril, anxious only to save their lives. So it was when the front came back. Herds of moujiks, the old men, the women, the children, the poor little babies, struggled blindly eastwards through the village, pushing their miserable household goods on hand-carts, or staggering along with loads on their backs, and weary children dragging at their arms. The human tide flowed eastwards round our house, begged perhaps a drink of water, and then wandered feverishly onwards. They knew not, in ninety-nine cases out of a hundred, where they were going. Their only destination was summed up in the words, Away from the front, away from the ominous rumbling which began to get louder, away from that western horizon which was beginning to have a lurid glow at nights, like a sunset prolonged to dawn. Then, as the Germans advanced more and more, the character of the tide changed, the civilian element was outnumbered by the military. Companies, battalions, brigades, sometimes in good order, sometimes in no order, marched through the village. They would often halt for a short time, and the officers would come up to the house, where my mother and I gave them what we could. My father lived amongst his books and accounts, and bemoaned the extravagance of the war. Then there were the deserters, the stragglers, the walking wounded, the... But you know, my Karl, what an army in retreat means. I must proceed with my story, for time moves relentlessly on. One day, a desperately wounded officer, a young lieutenant of the guard, a boy of twenty-five, was taken out of a motor ambulance to die. The ambulance had stopped opposite our gates, and lying on his stretcher he had seen our garden, my garden. He knew he was to die, and he had begged with tears in his eyes to the doctor that he might be left in the garden. Who could refuse him? He died within two hours, amongst our flowers, with Alex and I at his side. Before he died he begged us, implored us, almost ordered us, to move east before it was too late. We repeated his arguments to my father, but the latter was obdurate and he swore that a regiment of angels would not move him from his ancestral home. So we made up our minds to stay. Things got worse and worse, and one day shells fell in the grounds and we hid in the cellars. That night all our servants ran away, and my father cursed them for cowards. 
Next day in the early morning we heard machine-guns fire outside the village, and then all was still. At six o'clock Alex, white-faced, came running into the house. He had been down to the gates, and he had seen the enemy. They were drunk, he said, and going down the street firing the houses and shooting the people as they came out. It seemed impossible, and yet it was true. It was growing dark when we heard shouts and saw lights, and from the top of the house I saw a crowd of singing and shouting soldiers with pine torches, half running, half walking, up the drive. They massed in a body opposite the house. Paralyzed with terror, I looked down on the scene, and shuddered to see that every second man seemed to have a bottle. One of them fired a shot at the house and next I remember a flood of light on the drive, and in the circle of light my father standing with hand raised. What my father intended could never be known, for, as he paused and faced the mob, a solitary shot rang out, and he fell in a huddled heap. As he fell a boyish voice from the door shouted, Murderers! It was Alex. With his little pistol I had given him for a birthday present in his hand, he ran forward, and standing over my father's body, head thrown back, he pointed his pistol at the mob and fired twice. A man dropped, there was a flash of steel, the crowd surged forward, and—and—oh, my Carl! They had murdered my beloved brother, my darling Alex. The next moment they were in the house. I escaped from my window on to the roof of the dairy, and from there down a water-pipe, across the yard to an old hayloft. For a long time they ran in and out of the house, like ants, looting and pillaging. Then there was a great shout, and for some time not a soul came out of the house. I guessed they had got into the cellars. At about midnight I saw that the house was on fire. In a few minutes it was an inferno, and the drunken soldiers came pouring out firing their rifles in all directions. I had found a piece of rope in the loft. One end I placed on a hook, and the other round my neck. I was close to the upper doors of the loft, with a drop to the courtyard, and thus I stayed, for I feared that some soldier, more sober than the rest, might explore the outhouses and find me. I was watching this unearthly spectacle, and never, my best beloved, did I conceive that man could become lower than the beasts. But before my eyes it was so, when I noticed that the great gates at the southern end of the courtyard were opening. As they opened I saw that beyond them was drawn up a line of men. An officer gave an order, and two machine-guns were placed in position at the gate entrance. Round the guns lay their crews, and the seething mass of revellers saw nothing. I felt that a fearful tragedy was impending, and as I held my breath with anxiety, the officer gave a short, sharp movement with his hand, and a hideous rattle rose above all noises. The pandemonium that ensued was indescribable. Some ran helplessly into the burning house, others ran round and round in circles, others tried to get into the dairy. One man got upon its roof, and fell back dead as soon as his head appeared above the outer wall. The place was surrounded. It was horrible. A few tried to rush for the gate. They melted away like snow before the sun, 
as their bodies met the pitiless stream of bullets. I suppose two hundred men were killed in as many seconds. The machine-guns ceased fire. Ambulance parties came into the yard, collected the dead and living, and within half an hour there was not a soul save myself in the place. Discipline had received its oblation of men's lives. As an example, it was one of the most wonderful things I have ever known in your wonderful army, my Carl, but it was terrible, terribly cruel. I never knew what became of my mother, though I feel she is dead, murdered perhaps like my father and my darling Alex, or perhaps she hid somewhere in the house and remained petrified with terror till the flames came. Next morning I left my hiding-place and walked about. Not a German was to be seen, but in the wood was a huge, newly-made grave. It was all open warfare then, and this flying column, which was miles in advance of the main body, had moved on. The house was a smoking mass of ruins, but the farm buildings had been spared, and I let out all the poor animals and turned them into the woods, so that they might have their chance. All day. I searched for my father and brother, but not a sign was to be seen, and at dusk I stood alone, faint and broken, amongst the ruins of my ancestors' home. As I looked at the scene of desolation and I contrasted what had been my life twenty-four hours before and what it was then, something seemed to snap in my brain, and for the first time I cried. Oh, the blessed relief of those tears, my Carl, for I was a poor, weak, helpless girl and alone with death and bitterness all round me. Late that night I hid once more in my hayloft, and next morning I left in Covano forever. Before I left I made a vow. It is because of this vow, my beloved, that I am to die. For I vowed by the body of our Saviour, and the murdered bodies of my family, that whilst life was in me, and the war was maintained, for so long would I work unceasingly for the Allies against Germany. As the war ran its fiery course I have seen more and more that the Allies are the only ones who will do anything for Poland, my beloved country, so have I been strengthened in my vow. I struck south on my feet, as a poor girl, I, the daughter of a princely family of Poland. No hardships were too great for me, provided I could reach Allied territory. I travelled from village to village as a singing girl, and once I was driven away with stones by villagers set upon me by a fanatical priest. I came by Krakow and across the Carpathians, helped to pass the lines by a Hungarian lieutenant, but I tricked him of his reward. I was not ready for that sacrifice. Then across the Hungarian plains to Budapest, where I remained three weeks, singing in a third-rate café, to make some money for my next stage. But I had to leave too soon, the old story. This time it was the proprietor's son. What beasts men are, my Carl! And yet to me you were above all other men, a prince amongst your fellows, and never did I love you so distractedly as that first night at the shooting-box, when I read the scorn in your eyes as you rejected me. I have no shame in telling you this. Am I not already in the grave? And then I must be silent, and can only await your coming. 
After many struggles, wearisome to relate, I came to Hermannstadt, and there, whilst pushing my trade as a dancer, came into touch with a Hungarian band of smugglers working across the mountain passes between eastern Hungary and Romania. I did certain work for these men, and in return crossed with them one bitter night in a thunderstorm into Romania. At Bucharest I got a good engagement, and when I had saved a thousand marks, I bought a passport for five hundred and came to Serbia, then staggering beneath the great Austrian offensive. Once again I was in the horrors of a retreat, but I escaped, reaching Valona, and crossed to Brindisi by the aid of a French officer to whom I told my story, and who believed me. His name is Pierre Le Mansour, and he lives at Bordeaux. If fortune places him in your power, be kind to him, my Karl, for your Zoe's sake. I came to Rome, and thence to Paris. I stayed here three weeks, singing in a cabaret. Whilst here I tried to advance my plans in vain. What could I, a small girl, do for the Allies? The embassy laughed at me, all except one young attaché who tried to make love to me. Then I thought of England. England and her cold, hard islanders, phlegmatic in movements, slow to hate, slow to move, but once roused. Ah! They never let go, these islanders. One of their poets has said, The mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceeding small. That, my Karl, is like England. They are your most terrible enemies, and you know it. Do not be angry with me when you read this. For me it is Poland, for you Germany. Where I am going in a few hours there is no Poland, no Germany, no England, no war. And perhaps, perhaps, no love. You and I, Karl, have loved too well, perchance, but our love was above even the love of countries. God made the love of men and women, then men and women created their countries. I see the future before me, Karl, and I foresee that the struggle will be at the end of all things, between England and Germany. One will be in the dust. Thus I crossed to England, and was swallowed up in the great city of London. England has always had a corner of her calculating heart for the small nations, and in London there is a Polish organization. I applied there, and one day I was taken to the foreign office, and found myself alone with a great Englishman. His name was... No, I promised, and it will not matter to you, for though he gave me my chance, I have no love for him, and he will never be in your power. Even as I write these words, he has probably taken a list from a locked safe, and neatly ruled a red line through the name Zoetsibilitz. I tell you they know everything, these Englishmen. I told him my story, and then he asked me whether I was prepared to do all things for the Allies. I told him I was. He then said that I could go as agent for a back area in Belgium, and my centre would be Bruges. I agreed and asked him innocently enough how I was to live in Bruges. He looked up from his desk and said, "'You will be given facilities to cross the Belgium-Holland frontier as a German singer.' "'And then?' I asked. "'You will go to Bruges and make friends with an army officer. 
he must be high up on the staff. I guessed what he meant, but hoped against hope, and I said, How? I can still see his fish-like face, hair brushed back with scrupulous care, as without a shadow of emotion he looked up, puffed his pipe, and said in a matter-of-fact tones, You have a pretty face and an excellent figure. Need I say more? I could have struck him in the face. I was speechless, my mind a whirl of conflicting emotions. I was roused by the level tones again. Is it too much for Poland? Oh, the cunning of the man! He knew my weakness. Mechanically I agreed. Certain details were settled, and he pressed a bell. Within five minutes I was walking back to my lodgings. Thanks to a marvellous organization, which your police will never discover, my Karl, within three weeks I was singing on the Bruges Music Hall stage, and accepted without question as being what I was not, a German artist from Danzig. The men were soon around me, but I had no use for youngsters with money. I wanted a man with information. At last I found my man, the Colonel. He was on the headquarters staff of the Eleventh Army, the Army of Occupation in Belgium, when I first met him. Subsequently he went back to regimental work, but by the time he was killed, and to realize what a release that meant for me, you would have had to have lived with him. I had established regular sources of information concerning which I will say no more. Let your country's agents find them, if they can. This must I say for the Colonel. He was a brute and a drunkard but in his own gross way he loved me, and he licked my boots at my desire, but I had to pay the price. You are a man, and with all your loving sympathy you can but dimly realize what this costs a woman. To me it was a dual sacrifice of honor and life, but it was for Poland, and the memories of my parents and Alex steeled me and strengthened my resolution, and so, and so my Karl. I paid the price. My special work was on the military side, and consisted in making quarterly reports on the general dispositions of large bodies of troops, the massing of corps for spring offensives, and big pushes and hammer-blows. Then you came into my life. When the Colonel used to go away it was my habit to mix in the demi-mondaine society of Bruges, to try and live a few hours in which I could forget. Oh, don't think the worst. That sort of thing had no attraction for me. I didn't seek oblivion in that direction. I'd never even kissed anyone in Bruges until I kissed you that first night we met at dinner. I was attracted to you from the very first. The Colonel was due back in a few days, and I suddenly felt mad and kissed you. I suppose you put me down as one of the usual kind, out to sell myself at a price varying between a good dinner and the rent of a flat. You will now know that I had already mortgaged my body to Poland. Then in a few days later you will remember we went down for that wonderful day in the forest, and for the first time, Karl, I began to see that I was really caring for you, and a faint realization of the dangers and impossibilities towards which we were drifting crossed my mind. Do you remember how silent I was on the drive back? In a fashion, my Karl. I could foresee dimly a little of what was going to happen. 
I had a presentiment that the end would be disaster. But I thrust the idea away from me. Then came the day, just before one of your trips. Oh, the agony, my darling, of those days, each an age in length, when you were at sea, when you told me at the flat that you loved me. How I longed to throw my arms round your neck and abandon myself to your embraces, but I was still strong enough in those days to hold back for both our sakes. Each time we were together I loved you more and more, and each time when you had gone I seemed to see with clearer vision the fatal and inevitable ending. But I refused to give up the first real happiness that had been mine in my short and stormy life, and so I clung desperately to my idle dream. I prayed, I prayed for hours, Carl, that the war might end, for I felt that in this lay our only hope. But what are one woman's prayers, a sinful woman's prayers, to the Creator of all things, and the war ground on in its endless agony just as it does to-night? Carl, Carl, will this torture ever end? But I must hurry, there is still much to tell you, and time goes on relentlessly just like the war. It is only life that ends. Then came the days I took you to the shooting-box for the first time, and that night I broke down, and, unashamed, offered you myself. Think not too badly of your Zoe, my Carl, when a woman loves, as I do. What is convention? A nothing, a straw on the waters of life. I wanted you for my own, passionately and desperately, for I feared that any moment the end might come and to die without having felt your arms around me would have added a thousand tortures to death. Though I could have welcomed death with joy when I saw the look of sorrowful contempt which you cast upon me that night. Heavens above! But you were strong, my Carl. I am not ugly, and yet you resisted, and I hated and loved you at the same time. Oh, I know that sounds impossible, but it isn't for a woman. I slept little that night, and feeling that I could not look you in the face in the morning, I left for Bruges before you got up. I felt that I could trust you not to try and find out the secret of the shooting-box. What a relief it is to be able to tell you everything frankly, and how I hated the perpetual game of deception which I had to play. I used to rack my brains for answers to your perpetual question, Why won't you marry me? It was a desperate risk taking you down to the forest, but you loved me so much that you never questioned the reasons I gave you for my secrecy. I can tell you now, Carl, that in the early days when I used to disappear from Bruges, it was to the shooting-box that I went. But I will write more of that later. Did you suffer the same agony as I did before you left for Kiel, and your pride would not allow you to come to me? You understand now, my darling, why I could never marry you, and when the Colonel was killed it became harder than ever. Once during that terrible interview before you went up the Russian coast, I nearly gave way and promised to marry you. But how could I? I had sworn my vow, and even to-night, though I stand in the shadow of death, I do not regret my vow. It is inconceivable that I could have married you and carried on my work, a spy on my husband's country, and if I ever thought of trying to do this impossible thing, a vision which has partially come true always restrained me. 
I saw a submarine officer disgraced, and perhaps sentenced to death, because his wife had been convicted as a spy. No, it was impossible. But if I could not marry you, I still wanted your love. Then you went up the Russian coast, and I heard of your return in a submarine terribly wrecked. I guessed what you must have gone through, and determined to see you, but when I entered your room and saw you lying open-eyed on your bed, with no one but a clumsy soldier to nurse you, I could have wept. You know the rest. You can perhaps hardly remember how I led you to my car, and took you down to the forest. Oh, Carl, are you angry with me for what happened? Do you sometimes think that I took an unfair advantage of your weakness? Please, please forgive me. You were so helpless, and I loved you so. Then came those unforgettable weeks whilst your boat was being repaired, weeks which opened to me the door of the paradise I was never to enter. Oh, Carl, I pray that all those memories may remain sweet and unclouded all your life. Think of those days when you think of your Zoe. Alas, they came to an end too soon, and you left for the Atlantic. When you came back all was over. I had been caught at last. The evidence at the trial was clear enough. I have no complaints. I was fairly caught. You remember the big open space in front of the shooting-box? I do not mind saying now that five times have I been taken up from there in an English aeroplane, and landed there again after two days. Each time I took a full report on military affairs. Not a word of naval news, my Carl. You will remember I never tried to find out U-boat information. I even warned you to be cautious. Well, they caught me as I landed. The English boy who had flown me back tried hard to save me, but it only cost him his own life. My first thought was of you, and there is not a jot of evidence against you, save only your friendship for me. Remember this fact, if they persecute you. Admit nothing. Believe nothing they tell you. Deny everything. They have no evidence, but they are certain to try and trap you. It was noble of you, Carl, to engage Monsieur Labordin in my defence, but it was useless, and may do you harm. I also know of your efforts with the Governor. I hoped nothing from him, but what you did has made me ready to die. I tremble, lest you are compromised. If only I could feel absolutely certain that I have not dragged you down in my ruin, I should face the rifles with a smile. For my sake, be careful, Carl. When it is all over, cause a few little flowers to cover my resting-place, if this is permitted for a spy. Order them. Do not place them yourself. You must not be compromised. I have told my story, and the end is very near. What else is there to say? Mere words are empty husks when I try to express my thoughts of you. Do not sorrow for your Zoe, to whom you have given such happiness. I am not afraid to die and cross into the unknown, which, however terrible it is, cannot be much worse than this awful war. Carl, Carl, how I long to kiss you and feel your strong arms crushing the breath from this body of mine, which has caused so much sorrow. Oh, Mother Mary, support me in this hour of trial. I cannot leave you. 
May the saints guard you and keep you through all the perils of war, and grant that we meet again in the perfect peace of eternity. Forever. Your devoted and adoring Zoe. End of section 